hppodcraft.com. It was somewhere at the back of beyond. Maybury would have found it difficult to be more precise. He was one who, when motoring outside his own territory, preferred to follow a route given by one of the automobile organizations. And on this very occasion, as on other previous ones, he had found reasons to deplore all deviation. This time, it had been the works manager's fault. The man had not only poured ridicule on the official route, but had stood at the yard gate in order to make quite certain that Maybury set off by the shortcut, which according to him, all the fellows in the firm used, and which departed in the exactly opposite direction. The most that could be said was that Maybury was presumably at the outer edge of the immense West Midlands conurbation. The outer edge it by now surely must be, as he seemed to have been driving for hours since he left the works, going round and round in large or small circles, asking the way and being unable to understand the answers, when answers were vouchsafed. All the time, seemingly more off course than ever. Those were the opening few paragraphs of Robert Aikman's The Hospice. And we're going to give this strange story a strange study. Because that's what we do here on HPPodcraft.com. Strange studies of strange stories. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And we're also on Patreon. This is a free show, but please consider subscribing for six shows a month and access to over 500 episodes in our archive. Yeah, this is in fact episode 566 of the show right now. 566, the number of the guy one street over from the beast. It is. Larry. A significant number in great proximity to evil, and we have a guest here to join us on this special occasion. We are joined by the writer of such joys as The League of Gentlemen, Funland, Psycho Bitches, and Tracy Ullman Show, Jeremy Dyson. Welcome, Jeremy. Delighted to be with you guys, really. It's a it's a pleasure and a treat to get to talk about Aiken. Jeremy has also written several books, including Bright Darkness, Lost Art of the Supernatural Horror Film, a nonfiction guide to horror films, and two collections of short stories entitled Never Trust a Rabbit, as well as the novel What Happens Now. There are some shows that kind of work their way into everyday conversation, The Simpsons for example, it just becomes part of your speech pattern. League of Gentlemen is one of those shows for my wife and I. You know, when we're on the road, she'll go, oh, look, it's a local shop for local people. No accent, no imitation. That's just how you say that now. Yeah. Uh, we're huge fans, so I'm really excited to have you on the show. Oh, that's great to know. Also that it crosses uh, cultural divides as well. You know, um, we uh, never were sure what Americans would make of it. So uh, it's great to, to know that uh, it plays to you. Well, you almost suffered from that. I don't know what it is about human nature, but it was it, for a long time, people were saying, have I got the show for you? This is what you are going to love this. And I thought, well, I'll show you. I'll just not watch it. But then when I finally did, I thought, oh, my God, this is fantastic. And I have to say, while we were reading this Aikman story, I, th I was thinking, mm hmm. There's definitely yeah. some influence here. Oh, well, well, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, Aikman was one of the things that me and Mark Gatiss, uh, my fellow League of Gentlemen, co-writer we we bonded over robert aikman when we uh, when we first met each other it's one of the things we bonded over so um you're right to pick up on that resonance our reader this week is uh, none other than greg johnson i'm sure everybody recognized him he's been bugging me for a while to do some aikman stuff but i dodged aikman i i don't know why you know all the stuff that we cover aikman has been on the periphery and i listened to jeremy you did a like a bbc mini documentary on on radio four right was radio four yes, that's right yeah yeah it was radio four you talk about how nobody seems to know who this guy is 
Why is he on the periphery, do you think? He's kind of less and less on the periphery, it has to be said. Well, I mean, he's still, I suppose, quite niche, but um, his, his reputation has definitely grown year, almost year on year, I think. But since he died, he died quite in 1981, so uh, you know, 40 years ago. I mean, he and he was very celebrated uh, in in his in his own time. He was a World Fantasy Award winner uh, more than once, I think. But in terms of mainstream acknowledgement, you know, by by um, say the literary establishment, that never came to him at all. And uh, that's that's strange to me because he's such a phenomenally brilliant writer. You know, he is he is up there with. M.R. James, um, with, um, uh, with, with well, we'll take your pick, but uh, with, with I, I'd say he's up there with Poe, and he's certainly up there with Ray Bradbury as a unique voice in um, supernatural fiction or strange fiction. Strange stories is is how he described his own work, uh, which is so killer for us since we just recently rebranded the Strange Studies of Strange <laughs> Stories. I was like, hey, he gets it. I love it. This is perfect. <laughs> I mean, he's so unique. His voice is is so unlike anybody else's that that may be part of it. Maybe, maybe that is enough to just alienate people or maybe uh, as time passes you know he he will become more and more known only time will tell we actually my first acquaintance with Aikman happened a couple of years ago at a bookstore where my wife picked up uh, a copy of Dark Entries randomly because she liked the cover art we didn't know anything I thought maybe it was because of the Bauhaus song but she just yeah, yeah. she likes that cover art <laughs> Uh, neither of us had read him. This is part of a series that collects Aikman's fiction from Faber and Faber. The story we're reading today is in the collection Cold Hand in Mine, which you're mentioned in the introduction in that uh, collection, actually. Oh, in the in this latest uh, reprint, yeah. In Cold Hand in Mine, yeah. But I've been uh, sort of associated with Aikman for uh, oh, well, probably about 20 years and publicly uh, now because I've, I've sort of... Because he was an obsession, I've I've adapted his work. Uh, I, I mean, Mark did a radio adaptation. I've I've done a, a, a short film of one of his stories. Uh, strangely, I did a, a, an oratorio, a song like a mini opera, which of one of his stories called "The Same Dog," which I, I wrote the words for. Or wow! The words for. So you know, he's he's been a he's been an obsession for as long as I've been a professional writer. And now, how did you come across him? Was there when you were a child that some uh, creepy uncle pass it off to you? Well. Almost exactly that. Um, Aikman in the 70s used to edit uh, the, the Fontana Book of Ghost Stories, which was a, a recurring anthology of ghost stories. It came out regularly through the, the 60s and 70s. So I, I was, you know, I was very young in the 70s. I was probably about seven or eight, but I had a reputation for liking <laughs> spooky stuff even then. There was one year when I got bought loads of stuff for my birthday and there were two Aikman edited collections that I got that year. They were completely unsuitable for a seven-year-old. <laughs> you know, these stories, they're not just terrifying, but they're kind of insidious. They get inside oh, your yeah. head. That was where it began. And I, I don't think, I, to be honest, I don't think I, I read too many of his stories then. He always used to put one of his stories in those collections because they would have just got, obviously gone over the head of a seven-year-old. He didn't really get me uh, as a fan until I was probably about 20. It was when I started reading him properly. But I knew him. I knew him as the ghost man because, because of those... Um, Mm. because of those collections. The seed was planted there and then it kind of flowered quite a bit later, you know, when there was, as I say, when it was about 19 or 20, when there was a reprint of Cold Hand in Mine. It was a, it, there was yeah. a, um, a mid-80s reprint of Cold Hand in Mine. And that was, that was what got me. I was blown away. I couldn't believe it. Uh, literally, from the first story, uh, it was so, almost like something I'd been waiting to read. 
Um, it was, it was <laughs> everything that I, that I wanted in supernatural fiction. Well, it certainly f feels that way for both of us because we're new readers to Aikman and we, it's a sliding scale between the stories we cover on this show. Sometimes, it, uh, more often than not, these are straight monster stories. Whereas this is more like The Willows, where it's a, that much more rarefied air of weird fiction, where he really achieves, I think, the, the things that Lovecraft set out when he described what this is, which is a touch from the outside. <laughs> I read the story, uh, the, the School Friend, first. And yeah. it scared the hell out of me. Yeah, it's it terrifying. really did. It's terrifying, this book, right? Yeah. Which Gen is such a, it doesn't happen very often. No, and it doesn't. So to me, I thought, wow, this is the good, this is the top shelf stuff yeah. we're discovering here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of his stories will do that. The Stains is one that, that really upset me and really, you know, genuinely frightened me. And the Swords, uh, lots the swords. of them have that effect. Yeah. Yeah. I just read that on my way to Scotland. Well, I read, I listened to the audio of it on my way to Scotland. The kids had their headphones in the back and <laughs> it's just one of these things where you think it's going someplace and it goes this other place and there's always with his writing i'm probably jumping ahead of myself there's it could always be something else like i always feel like maybe it's supernatural maybe it's not supernatural but it's it's definitely not normal and it's <laughs> it's unsettling in that way that life is often unsettling. Mm -hmm. Where It's too much like life. It's a little too much like life, but in a great way. I don't understand how this guy has flown under the radar, especially for me and the stuff that we've covered. I should have listened to Greg. You're a fool. I'm just busy. <laughs> you know, guys got stuff hey, to do. One takeaway is that you're a fool. But it happens. <laughs> Listen, I've literally only uh, in the last year read Arthur Macon which is to me unbelievable because Macon is, is you know, such a, a huge figure in supernatural fiction. And it's just taken me that long to get round to him for some reason and was yeah. blown away by by Macon, you know, who actually yeah. is a is a touchstone for Aitman, I think, as yeah. well, you know, in terms of the strangeness and, uh, and, the, and the weirdness of, and that sense of having stepped out of the ordinary world. It happens because we, we are finite creatures. We are. <laughs> Well, we but sure it's always are. such good news. I mean, this was great news because I have all these books to read now. Yeah. Well, how about a little bit of bio, Chris? Sure. Aikman, he was born in London. Robert Aikman was born in London in 1914, the son of an architect. And he was the grandson of the Victorian novelist Richard Marsh, known for his occult thriller, The Beetle, which was very popular at the time. It outsold Dracula, I read at the time in 1897. We might get into it at some point because it has something to do with an ancient Egyptian entity that manifests through a beetle and has really specifically weird mind powers and stuff. So <laughs> that's right, that's in our wheelhouse. So we might, we might get around to grandpa's work as well. Robert Aikman studied architecture like his old man, and I'm not sure how he made his living at first, which I'm a little, his bio that I can find on it was very vague about how he made money. Well, it's very mysterious how he made his living. It seems he must have had a small private income, as they used to say, you know, maybe some stipend or some, some pension or something that he was able to live quite frugally on because he seemed to sort of please himself. I mean, he did have another life, another professional life or semi-professional life is that he founded the Inland Waterways Association or co-founded yeah. it. But in the UK, that was the canals, um, which uh -huh. had all fallen, completely fallen into disrepair. The UK had a, had a big canal network um, that dated back to pre-railway times. And they, they were all still there, but they were just completely grown over and clogged with weeds and forgotten. And so this, this organization that Aikman started rescued the canals and, and they're, they're all, most of those canals are open now, or many of them are open because of Aikman. 
it wouldn't wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for him and um, the other people in that organization so that's a major contribution to british culture as well uh, Mm. albeit a non-literary one so you know fascinating man we love our canals around here oh yes well yes yeah yeah you've got uh you've got the leeds liverpool running by you we do yeah walk by it often we we walk a dog down there uh, on saturdays it's great i love the canals robert was married to author Edith Gregerson in 1941, but then they divorced 16 years later. But he wasn't remarried after that. That was that was it for his married life. It was, although he did apparently have a fairly long-standing affair with uh, Elizabeth Jane Howard, who was his co- the co- who's a, a great English writer, who who wrote some fantastic supernatural fiction in their own right. In fact, the first book that Aikman published was co-written with her. They wrote three stories each called We Are Are For The Dark is the name of the uh, the collection. I think their affair started after that. She worked in the Inland Waterways Association. She was a secretary, I think, in the Inland Waterways Association or or was there in some capacity. And I think that's how they met. But she was was a big literary figure because she she went on to be a a renowned novelist. I think she was married to Kingsley Amis. Was it Kingsley Amis? I think she was. uh, He was a great British novelist. Oh, love triangle. Uh, I smell a romantic comedy. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, it's it's uh, yeah, a very literary arrangement. A sort of I don't know, what was wasn't quite a menage a trois, but I think it was a, it was a fairly open secret hmm. that she was hmm. having an affair with Aikman. So now he was interested in the supernatural, and he was a member of the Society of Psychical Research mm-hmm. and the Ghost yeah. Club. Yeah, that's right. Now that Society of Psychical Research, which um, Harry Price, the famous ghost hunter, he was another famous member of, of that organization. I've read a little bit about well his his idea or his belief in the the supernatural were sort of very open-ended or vague. Like he didn't necessarily literally believe in transparent entities floating around. It was was something else. I think that's right, yeah. Again, he's not really documented about it, but it it was all about the feel for him. You know, he was a very, very sensitive man by all accounts. It was about the atmosphere, the feeling. I mean, he did he did allude to experiences that he'd had in letters and things to correspondents, but never went on record as a, as you say, as 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 a sort of card carrying believer in tangible ghosts and spirits. But it was definitely part of his interest in the esoteric uh, and that there are more things in heaven and earth. He died of cancer or he yeah. got cancer in 1979, but he refused medical treatment and opted for homeopathy. I believe that's right. Yeah. And uh, I think he died in the homeopathic hospital. Yeah. So again, another another sort of example of his his belief in the esoteric and um, non-material. I mean, he was a great skeptic about modernity. You know, in fact, that's another reason why he may come back into fashion now, because this is something that um, is increasingly in the mainstream. But, you know, he was he he was somebody who concluded that mankind took a wrong turn at the Industrial Revolution, as far as he was concerned. I mean, that's something he was on record as saying. That's an undercurrent in all of his fiction, really, is is this loathing for um, sort of secular materialism. So in many ways, he's, he's, he's a kind of religious writer without being in any way denominational. He was not uh, identified as a Christian or, uh, or following anything. And yet there is a very spiritual quality to his work. That's very much what he's about in, in, you know, on, on quite a deep level, I think. So, yes, the, the homeopathy sort of fits in with that, I think. He received the World Fantasy Award in 1975. And we actually have a quote of something that he wrote in response to it. I'll have Greg read this. I believe in what the Germans term Ehrfurcht reverence for things one cannot understand. Faust's error was an aspiration to understand and therefore master things which, by God or by nature, 
are set beyond the human compass. He could only achieve this at the cost of making the achievement pointless. Once again, it is exactly what modern man has done. I believe in life after death, and I decline to particularize upon the meaning of the words, because of all futile and reductionist attempts at definition, this is the most idle. Most of my stories aim at universal themes, however difficult it may be to attain them. So this is somebody who's just saying, I don't understand it all, and I think it's arrogant to say that you understand it all, which that's is something right. that I'm perfectly in alignment with. I think that's a great attitude to have. The thing is, you can't argue with that, because that's the truth. I mean, another writer I think he's got a lot in common with is Kafka. And Kafka had this great phrase, which was the thing about being human, is that you keep coming up against the bony limits of your own forehead. That, that <laughs> is exactly Aikman's position as well. You know, there's limits to what we can know. Most of it is mystery. And the, the, the sort of pretense of uh, modernity is that actually we know everything and anything we don't know, we will know. It's only a matter of time. Uh, but it's a nonsensical position because obviously, <laughs> Absolutely. obviously we're bounded by our biology. And you yeah. know, the, the idea that we can comprehend all of reality. It just seems insane that anyone would even posit that. Yeah. yeah. And yet that's the modern position because we're so in oh, love sure. with our technology and our science. Absolutely. That's the arrogance. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. Different show, maybe, because I'm like, mm, <laughs> let's go. Let's talk about that for a while. But uh, we should dig into this, this story. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the Hospice was originally part of his collection, Cold Hand and Mine, Eight Strange Stories, released in 1975. Jeremy, you chose this one for us to cover as the first one. Why this story? Well, I think I chose it because it's the one that hit me first. You know, I think it's in, mm. in the edition of, of Cold Hand and Mine that I've got, I think it's probably the second story, maybe the third. And the minute I read it, it was like a complete mind blown. It was... Yeah. It was like nothing I'd ever read before. The impact it had on me was extraordinary. It's a supernatural story, but there's nothing supernatural in it, or there's perhaps one possible supernatural event, but there's no ghosts, there's no monsters, there's no vampires. It wasn't like anything else, and it was hard to understand at the time I read it, when I was 20, how it was doing what it was doing to me. And I, I've since, over the years, got a bit more of a handle on on that. But yeah, it was just a, it was a it was a big light bulb, a massive epiphany for me. Well, it's also story. funny. It's a funny story, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. surprisingly, and it carries the humor across in a way where I'm not sure what the joke is. <laughs> I, it's an absurd situation that I'm laughing at, but I feel menaced and uncomfortable at the same time. And that's a real. That's when I was saying I, this is clearly informative of League of Gentlemen. This is this is definitely imprinted on that in some way because I had those sensations watching that show as well. There's a lot of comedy of manners in Aikman, and you, you get mm. a lot of that in this story. You know, he was a he was an acute observer of sort of English politeness and and the hypocrisy that went along with that, or how how politeness and manners are used to cover up terrible behaviour. Yeah. yeah, his characters are beautiful, <laughs> and and particularly when he's in this very dryly comic mode as he is here you know the hospice is is a hotel is a sort of hotel of sorts and he he gets how the staff speak and that that sort of brilliantly english thing of how staff in a hotel can have absolute disdain for you even as they're speaking politely you know the faulty towers thing yeah and, yeah uh, that's very peculiar to, to the english who have no concept of service at all um, <laughs> there is no such thing as english service and, and so there's a lot of that going on at the start of the story which draws you in because uh, you recognize it it feels true well I, that opening i think 
for me is its own little horror story, simply that the man insists he takes the other way that he doesn't want to take. And then he has to because he's watching him. That just filled me with so much anxiety right away. <laughs> I hate it when somebody asks me to do something and then watches me while I do it. What if I don't want to do this, you know? And he has to stand. Well, that guy stands there. He drives off in the opposite direction of where he wants to go. You could have stopped there. That's scary to me. And it's a little foreshadowing for everything that's going to come as well. Mm -hmm. and, and plus, of course, we're introduced to Maybury as a man who's literally lost. And as the story unfolds, we discover that he's uh, he's figuratively lost as well. You know, he's somebody mm -hmm. who's, who's lost lost in his life or lost his way in his life. So, it's a, yeah, it's a great opening on, on many levels because it's doing about three or four things at yeah. once. He's low on petrol, pulls over, finds himself in some kind of suburb. There are houses, but they're set way back from the, the main road. It's so relatable. It's exactly where you find yourself when you have to go to the bathroom so badly on a road trip. And suddenly there's no businesses. There's no, it's just houses and they look non-hospitable. He's got a wife, Angela, and a son at home. He doesn't want to run out of gas in the middle of, the no, of nowhere if he just keeps driving. So he, for a moment, is going to look for help on foot. I, I thought it was interesting that he stopped at a place he describes as a bifurcation in the road. So it's essentially a crossroads. Right? Yeah, he could go either way once again. Now, as he heads off uh, down one of the roads on a little sidewalk, he's attacked by something. And this was the first instance of something that also happened in The School Friend, where I was very lulled into the pace of the text. And then something happened very abruptly. And I feel like the description in the text probably took about the same amount of time to read as the incident. It's just sudden and disorienting. Uh, it says his wife and son were awaiting him. He must resume the fight to rejoin them. And then suddenly, something shot out at him from the boscage on his left. He had disturbed a cat, returned to its feral habitude. Uh, the first he knew of it was its claws, or conceivably its teeth, sunk into his left leg. There had been no question of ingratiation or cuddling up. Maybury kicked out furiously. The strange sequel was total silence. So the, the thing is, you don't know quite what's bitten him. And that almost, to me, like a quotation from um, Casting the Runes, the M.R. James story, where... Um, the protagonist puts his hand under the pillow and something bites him. It's definitely a, an omen. It's not quite a cat. Yeah, yeah. infuriatingly vague. He, maybe he saw the eyes. There was no mew or scream, so it was a silent attack, too. And then the injury hurts so much, he doesn't want to look at it or touch it. So I found this to be something that he does, is he distances us. Sometimes we get unreliable narrators, or we get narrators that are really doing that on purpose. They're dropping information. But he packs in real human ways to do it. Ugh, I don't even want to look at that. And then I'm faced sitting here with the book going, look at it. I want to know what happened. What happened to your leg? You jerk. <laughs> oh, but this definitely could have been some kind of guardian at the gate if this is zooming off into another plane of reality or something. I was very interested at this point. But the injury is such that he stops walking. He heads back to his car and he gets in to continue driving. But he comes across this sign for a hotel called The Hospice. It's arranged in a strange way on the page as well. It says the hospice, good fare, and then accommodate. Some accommodation. And I have to say that that detail, that was, uh, that was I think, the thing that really got me in terms of making me fall in love with Aikman. It, it's so unusual. It's such an odd detail to do that sort of typographical game. It's like a, like yeah. a poet might do. It made me think of E.E. E. Cummings or something. Yeah, you know? or, or, or something from Tristan Shandy. You know, it's, there's something meta mm. about it. But he's not that kind of writer. The last thing he is is a postmodern writer. Uh, and yet it's playful. It's so play it's like a, it's almost like something from a Monty Python book or something. It's, it's, it's mm -hmm. so unexpected that it's, it's completely charming as well as being very strange. And it's so strange that it's almost permanently lodged in my psyche, that 
good food, some accommodation sign. I just think of it all the time. It knocks you into the modern world a bit as well, because we're so used to reading things that were initially printed in pulps. People weren't experimenting with the actual typographic layout as part of the story. Yeah. Uh, when I came across that, I was like, oh yeah, this wasn't written in the 30s. This is this is from, well, I don't know when he wrote it, but it, this was published in the 70s. Yeah, it's, early it's 70s. Like 60s, it was, it yeah. was early 70s, yeah. So it suddenly brought me into, you know, oh, this is somebody who is going to be writing around the same time as these postmodern authors and people who we were playing with. What does it look like? What do the margins look like? Well, how do we actually put this on the page? And that was really invigorating as well. Yeah, and it's about the only time he does it in any of his stories as well. So it's, you know, it's just a gorgeous detail and perfectly judged because it just fits tonally. It's as just as a piece of taste. You know, literary taste on his part. It's, well, and it's it actually, heightens the horror a little bit too, because yeah. when you see the broken sign or you see the poorly laid out sign, you think, well, what else is wrong with this place? <laughs> well, and also, as, as someone who grew up and at least, you know, started life in Britain at that time, I recognize that. I recognize the kind of place that he's alluding to, uh, th these kind of half timbered restaurants mm. that would be in suburban areas that would be sort of gesturing back to Tudor times. You know, there was a lot of mock. Tudor in Britain in the 20th century and it, it's got that feel like that sign I could I could picture that sort of place there's a place in Ilkley called the box tree which is a very fancy restaurant um where in Ilkley where I live and that's very much got that aesthetic you know it's sort of uh, as if it's a, an old something from an old castle or tavern you know <laughs> right a hospice is a place where people who are terminally ill go to spend their last days in a, in a modern sense but it mm -hmm. it does have an alternative meaning yes it goes back our hospice uh, actually refers to the hospice movement itself is relatively recent so it, it, only a little bit earlier than this story was written the hospice movement was started probably in the mid 60s i think but yes that hospices before that were they were hospitals they were catholic hospitals in medieval times but they also took in pilgrims as well. You either went there if you were sick or if you were a pilgrim. There was, mm -hmm. You didn't go there if you were a casual visitor. Certainly, it seems an odd choice of hotel name. But I. But yes, this is a, a in the 70s is when the hospice movement was coming yeah, up. And, and, and there's, yeah, and there's no way it can't have that meaning. You know, yes. it's, it's redolent of, uh, of terminal illness. It's something, you know, and so there that's immediately terribly unsettling because, I mean, yeah. certainly, I, I, you know, I was aware of what hospices were when I, when I was a kid and, you know, and the idea, there was one near us, near, near our house when, um, when I was growing up. You would drive past it every day on the way to school, and I used to it used to frighten me because of I had no idea what went on in there. And so he's 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 yeah. absolutely he's playing on all those associations. From a story standpoint, too, it's uh, he's going into a place where people die. And as yeah. a guy who reads these types of stories, I'm thinking, oh, this ain't, this is not going to be good for him. No, it's, now, the, <laughs> it's bad foreshadowing. Just and also the strangeness within the story of. What kind of, because it's the place is very much a hotel. It says good food, some accommodation. What kind yeah. of hotel would call itself a hospice? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no. The question well, that's begged by that is, is enormous and funny. And yeah. this thing is old, right? Because when he pulls his car up there, he sees that there's another path that has, this is a recently carved in entrance and there's another much older path that stretches off toward the woods or the bushes, uh, right? And yet it's got the gate that's like from a farmyard, a modern mm. farmyard. It's, he says it's like a big the gates were big bullpen or something again just everything's wrong you know it's not yeah. the, the sort of gate that you would have on a on a hotel or a restaurant and a big security light comes on as well a very bright light so yeah. all the, every expectation that you've got is kind of immediately inverted 
all in the space of a paragraph. Instead of a creepy butler answering the door, it's a handsome young man. Yeah. Curly, fair hair, untroubled face, white jacket, very cherubic, very angelic. And doesn't seem troubled that the protagonist is here. He's troubled because it seems dinner's already started, but he just assumes this guy is late to it. Mayberry is, he's taken to the dining room. There's a long table down the center. Everyone is quietly eating. Nobody's talking. And it's mixed ages. Mayberry, he sat at a side table, not at this big main table. Uh, He notices there is an attractive middle-aged woman sitting at another one of these side tables. He can't really make out details of anybody. It's very hot and stuffy, and people are mostly very quiet, which is odd. And again, a lot of the horror in the story are these mundane discomforts. Not getting information on what is going on is so anxiety-inducing. Those were the things that were gripping me. Can you just tell me what the program is here? And and how much am I going to be charged for all this? There was some economic anxiety later as well. This food's really good. It's the physical details, too, because it's uncomfortably hot so immediately yes. you're kind of reading that and you know by now if you're reading it you are Maybury, so you're imagining yourself in that position so there's the physical mm-hmm. discomfort of the heat but then the, the the really chilling stuff starts when he he, he served the food which right. is which which is good but there's too much of it and it's thick <laughs> so he's, he's served this thick soup first of all on an enormous plate and he has to eat all of it and someone stands over him like a nanny, you know. Stands over him like the guy that watched him drive away. Yeah. All of that is, it's somebody over your shoulder watching what you do. It's so uncomfortable. And I also thought in that moment, because he says the plate, the soup is a lot, but then the bowl, the receptacle itself is deeper and wider than he thought. And it's inscribed with these letters, the hospice, he says, rather in the style of a baby's plate. And I thought as he was describing it, wait a minute, is this a large volume of soup or is he getting smaller? You know, is he somehow devolving into a more childlike state? And I noticed there was a lot of language about being a child, being a baby. Mm -hmm. He's being treated in a childlike manner. Everything is sort of babyish and small. So, hmm, what's going on here? Is it for his own good? Mm-hmm. And then when the next course is brought out and it's again, the description so vivid and it's a huge slab of oily turkey <laughs> and, um, and, you know, too many potatoes. It always makes me think of a, 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 years ago we went to uh, it was Christmas. Some friends had invited us for tea and cake in the afternoon. So we had our we had Sunday lunch and then we went to uh, got arrived at our friend's house. This was me and my wife. Actually, they made us lunch. It wasn't tea and cake. They'd cooked us lunch and we were too embarrassed oh. to say that we'd already had quite a big lunch and they'd gone to, they made this huge Christmas lunch and it was exactly like, it was the most <laughs> awful thing having to try and force food in when you're not hungry. You're not hungry and it's hot too and eating when it's hot. There you've got, that's an illness thing as well, you know, a loss of appetite and uh, having to eat when you're ill, It's uh, that seems to be part of the mix as well. So all of this is just adding up, the, the little odd details are getting just this gradual escalation of, uh, of discomfort. Right, and then, then my favorite line in the story, which is funny, is when he, he's, I can't get through this plate of pasta if you want me to eat that next course, which she had told him was turkey as if he was a little boy and it was his favorite meal. And then the woman says, it's turkey tonight. You know how turkey just slips down you? It's so disgusting that she says, (laughs) it's a very viscous food. It won't be a problem for you to eat it at all. (laughs) And then you get the, you know, the breaking of all social convention where the, this is the waitress who's serving to him, then loses her temper and, 
uh, knocks the food to the floor again which is part funny but also part terrifying because the, that breaking of social conventions is often a very scary thing it's very unsettling hi folks don't want to further unsettle you but we're going to have to break not just social conventions but this episode in half we're going to be back next week with the second and concluding part of our conversation with mr dyson on this story the hospice again this was our free show for october the next will be available exclusively for patreon subscribers check us out at patreon.com witchhousemedia also wanted to note that we're going to be doing some website updates this month and we'll be letting you know about those changes as we go via social media won't affect patreon subscribers at all however and our feature-length adaptation of clark ashton smith the colossus of elorn which we've been eking out in chapters for bonus subscribers will premiere in full later this month for free for everybody keep your ears peeled for that we're excited thanks everybody hope this episode slipped right through you and we'll be back next week for more strange studies of strange stories